so I had a project in seminary I was thinking about this week, uh, and the job that our group had was to respond to difficult situations in church. It's how we were, you know, church is difficult sometimes. <laughs> you probably didn't know that, right? You don't need to know that. Uh, occasionally it is. We had to learn how to respond and practice responding to some difficult situations. My group actually had uh, the job to respond to a situation where a hypothetical staff member uh, had a moral failure involving a group of teenagers. And uh, I hope you would know what to do. <laughs> At first I was like, oh man, it seems like pretty cut and dry what we should do. And in fact, our group gave a presentation that the guy had to be fired. Uh, he's got to be fired. I mean, he disqualified himself for ministry. Uh, he, he uh, you know, we had a responsibility as a church to protect the teenagers of the church. Seemed pretty cut and dry, but I'll never forget one guy across the room as I uh, uh, helped give that presentation who just visibly was kind of getting angry. And at the end of our presentation, the class had a chance to respond and the first person to speak up was this guy who just kind of looked like he was getting a little, a little agitated by our presentation. And he just jumps up and just exclaims, but what about grace? What about grace? This is a question that a lot of people struggle with when it comes to God. Because you know God expects us to live according to his commandments. And we fail. And that judgment is a reality that we have to face. But then there's so many people who go, well, how does that work with grace? How can judgment and grace coexist? Are they partners or are they, are they pulling on each other? Is one happening at the expense of the other? How do we understand God when both of these things seem to be realities? Well, what if we came to understand that judgment and grace are not in competition with each other. They're not in tension with each other, but in fact, both pure expressions of God's love. And that if we understood it that way, we would understand that neither lessens the other. So just like a loving pastor has to take decisive action to protect the children of his church, so we have a loving God who cannot stand idly by while the creation he loves is ransacked by sin. So open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. We find the story of the flood, aka Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark, where the Bible puts God's judgment and his grace on beautiful display. So in Genesis chapter 6, only a few pages into our Bibles as we walk through this book of Genesis, sin has already turned God's good creation completely evil. The story covers four chapters, by the way. It's just a heads up. Like we're just going to kind of skim over the top of it and hit some highlights. There are several things. We could probably preach 20 sermons in these four chapters, but I want to show you what God is doing with the whole narrative of the flood account from Genesis 6 through 9 and talk about what it means for our lives and how it's a picture of both God's judgment and his grace. So I'm going to hit the highlights. I'm going to show you the pattern uh, that's repeated actually from Genesis chapter 3 all the way through Genesis chapter 11. If you're studying this on your own, you will see this pattern happen over and over and over again. It's where we're introduced to a sin, a story of sin, and then God speaks about the judgment that is to come. Then God acts on that judgment, and then ultimately we see it followed up with an act of grace, some show 
of grace. This is what happened in uh, Genesis chapter 3, if you might remember, when Adam and Eve first sinned. God spoke about the curse, and then God banished them from the garden, but then he also covered them with the animal skin. So you see uh, the sin, God speaks judgment, God acts his judgment out, and then God gives us grace. Okay, this is the patterns. This is how we're going to see it. But I want to start by looking at Genesis chapter 6 and just reading together verses 1 through 8, which act sort of like a movie trailer for the whole story. When we read these first eight verses, we're going to get kind of the highlight reel of what's going to happen over the arc of the story. No pun intended. Uh, Some of you didn't even catch that yet. You'll get it. You'll get it. All right, Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. When mankind began to multiply on the earth... And daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful, and they took any they chose as wives for themselves. And the Lord said, My spirit will not remain with mankind forever, because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth both in those days and afterward, when the sons of God came to the daughters of mankind who bore children to them. They were the powerful men of old, the famous men. When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and he was deeply grieved. Then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth, together with the animals, creatures that crawl, and birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. The movie trailer. You ready for the movie? Actually, kind of what I would do is I go, hey, let's go back to the beginning of that trailer because there was some weird stuff there at the beginning, right? Did you catch that? The sons of God, the daughters of men, the Nephilim, the powerful men of old. Maybe you just glossed right over it, but we could just admit this is one of the strangest four verses in the Bible in the beginning of Genesis chapter 6. And so I just want to like hit a highlight there and show you maybe what's, what's happening here uh, is that first of all, God sees sin. God sees sin. Yeah, the first four verses are strange. We had to understand like, who are these people? Who are the sons of God? Who are the daughters of men? Ultimately, who are their offspring, the Nephilim? Uh, people have suggested that they are men from the line of Seth, which we saw in chapter 5, the hopeful lineage of Seth, who is Adam's third son. Uh, Some have said that they intermarried with women from the line of Cain. You remember the evil line of Cain from chapter 4, and that's how we get all of humanity being corrupted. Others have said uh, that that the um, sons of God are fallen angels that are now procreating with humans. And then every theory that you can imagine in between those two are presented for us as options. You can form an opinion with Scripture about the identity of these figures, but the intention of Genesis is undisputed. That regardless of who these people are, what Genesis is doing is showing us an example of how sin had turned everyone on earth completely evil, which then invited God's judgment the subsequent aspect of the story. Now, the Nephilim, who were these uh, kind of superhuman uh, warrior giants, if you read some other parts of Scripture and kind of collect some ideas about who these people uh, were, 
They were powerful. They were famous. Here's what I want you to hear from this, that they were attempting to be like God. This was the, the movement of their life, was gaining power in an attempt to be like God, which we learned from Adam and Eve's first sin, that all sin is an attempt to be autonomous from God and to become like God for ourselves. Just like Eve saw that the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was good and beautiful, and then she took of the tree, of the fruit of the tree, the sons of God saw the daughters of men as good and beautiful and took for themselves as many as they wanted. It's a stark contrast to the creation story of Genesis 1, which if you remember, each day of creation, God saw that it was good. But here we see in chapter 6, verse 5, after being introduced to these people and this idea that the whole earth is corrupted, in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, it now tells us that God saw evil. And then God repeats this sentiment directly to Noah. Look in chapter 6, just a few verses after we stopped a minute ago. Verse 11, it says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with wickedness. God saw how corrupt the earth was, for every creature had corrupted its way on earth. Then God said to Noah, I've decided to put an end to every creature. The earth is filled with wickedness because of them. Therefore, I'm going to destroy. So the whole earth is corrupted because humans filled it with evil. Do you remember the blessing of Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, when God created humans in his image and then blessed them with this, uh, this blessing to multiply and to fill the earth and to subdue it? Genesis chapter 6 is showing us how humans have rejected that blessing and instead filled the earth with rebellion rather than obedience. So you see the picture, the story that Genesis is painting for us here, all inviting God's judgment because humans were destroying God's good creation. So how is God going to respond? Well, look at verse 6 and 7 of chapter 6. It's repeated twice. God regretted making man. God regretted. How does God regret? Well, God, who had cursed Adam and Eve with the burden of pain, because of sin, if you remember the curse in chapter 3, the labor pains that Eve would have to go through, the labor pains that Adam would have to go through as he worked the ground for food, God cursed them with these pains, but now also was having to himself bear a burden of pain as he watched his creation self-destruct. Since he re referenced creation of man, we look at the account of creation in chapter 2, there's a really interesting, just striking similarity in the Hebrew that I just want to draw your attention to. In chapter 2, verse 7, it says that God formed man out of the dust of the earth. And that word formed is, is the Hebrew word yasar. But then in chapter 6, verse 5, you know how everybody's evil all the time? It says that the inclination of man is evil, corruption. That word inclination is kin to the word yasar. It's the word yeser. You hear that? The similarity there? What's that mean? 
here's how I would say it, that just as God intentionally brought man into existence, now the story is painted for us that man is now bent on erasing God from existence. This is not just judgment because of a whim. This is a response to human evil, complete corruption that's leading to the destruction of God's good creation. So when God commits to destroy the earth by flood, he's not just popping off in anger. He's responding to what the humans are already doing. They're already destroying everything. It's totally changed from good to evil and now even trying to destroy God himself and become God for themselves, which is what all sin is. It's an attempt to usurp God from his throne. So what does this have to do with us that God sees sin? What, what is all this happening in here in the beginning of Genesis chapter 6? Some of you might remember um, the character on TV from the 80s and 90s named Al Bundy. And you remember that show, Married with Children? A few head nods from some of the older folks. Uh, yeah, uh, no offense if you, that was you. That was a long time ago, guys. Uh, Al Bundy, the main character, the, the father in the sitcom called Married with Children. And there's this one famous line that's been quoted and misquoted forever. But the quote is this. He, he's holding a massive trophy on top of a victory podium. And he says this as he's holding the trophy, giving his victory speech. He says, it's only cheating if you get caught. This is where mankind was going. That we can do whatever we want. What's God going to do to us? We can do whatever we want. God doesn't even know. But Genesis 6 proves to us over and over and over again in all kinds of ways that God sees sin, not just the overt external sin, but the inclination in man's heart and mind, the bend towards sin. God sees sinfulness in all of its ways, both external and internal. And the reality is, as God sees sin, he sees it as an affront to his sovereignty. So when you think, church, that you've covered your tracks, when you think, think you've cleared your history enough, uh, when you think that you have tucked that skeleton deep enough into the closet, God sees it all and it grieves the heart of God. God sees all sin. It cannot be hidden from him. But even more than grief, because God's a loving father, he's got to do something about it. He cannot stand idly by and watch us self-destruct. And this is where the account turns. And we see God speaking and then sending his judgment. So God saw the sin. Now he's going to speak and send his judgment. If you look back at chapter 6, verse 3, it says the Lord not only saw, it says the Lord said, the Lord said, my spirit will not remain with mankind forever because they are corrupt well, that might remind you of Genesis chapter 1. I hope it does. In verse 2, where it told us that God's spirit was hovering over the chaotic, watery depths of pre-creation. Flip back and look at it. The spirit of the Lord hovers over the waters. When now God is saying, 
as the Spirit had originally brought chaos to order in creation, God is speaking of destroying His creation by removing His Spirit and unleashing the chaos of the waters onto the earth. This is God's response, where he brought order to creation by the work of his spirit. Now he's going to remove his spirit because of corruption, and it's going to release the chaos again to again cover the earth. And all of this is because humans chose sin, which is a disordering of God's created order. So that's what invites chaos to surge. Sin always invites chaos to surge. So while God's warning of judgment sounds extreme to us, it sounds like it's an overreaction out of left field, what we see is that God is simply bringing the world to the same end that humans would bring it to if it was left to us. Do you get that? We're destroying it. Sin was destroying God's good creation, and God simply speeds up the process. Judgment is humans getting what they deserve. That's what it is. Judgment is humans getting what they deserve. Uh, Trimper Longman, one of the commentators on this passage, he says that the flood story is a vivid picture of the truth from Romans chapter 6, verse 23, all the way in our New Testament, which says the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. What does sin earn us? What's the common result? Death. This is where it goes. And so death is exactly what happens when God sends his judgment. He sends the flood. Uh, So think about this. If God gave life through creation, the flood of death is a form of uncreation, or what some have called decreation. It's the first act of uncreation, by the way, as we're looking at this in chapter 7, is in the instructions to Noah to build an ark of gopher wood. So the first act of uncreation is chop down the trees. Trees, if you remember, played a massive role in Genesis chapter, chapters 2 and 3, and now they're being cut down. Then we see as the water's surging in chapter 7, verses 17 through 20, if you're looking at it with me in the scripture there, you can see the water's surging and then covering the land, which originally the land had been placed there to separate the waters, if you remember from Genesis chapter 1, on day 3 of creation. Now they are swallowed up by the waters again. Moving on in chapter 7, verse 21 through 23, you see three times that the creatures, the, those who God had given the breath of life on day six of creation, now they are all dying. And that's repeated three times to emphasize that death is the certain result. Do you remember chapter 5? We studied the genealogy and the repeated, the repeated phrase, and he died. I think Pastor Andrew was over here. He actually had you guys saying, and he died, as you read it, which is great because it really drives that point home. Well, here again in the flood account, we're seeing that the result of sin is always death. The wages of sin is death. And the creatures, even the ones that God put his breath of life into at creation, now through this act of uncreation, are dying. They're reaping the reward of their sinfulness, which is another exclamation point on the Chapter 2, verse 17, in the creation account, when God said, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will certainly die. Now, the Hebrew word picture of what's happening here, when God says, I'm going to blot out humanity, I'm going to completely destroy humans, 
The word picture is like cleaning a dirty dish. You guys like to do dishes? Anybody love to do dishes? No, nobody likes to do dishes. They pile up in the sink, and then you figure, well, I guess i got to do something about this. And so you pick it up, you scrape it in the trash. One time, this reminds me, one time we found, uh, walked into a house and found um, our first dog. Usually when I talk about my dog, it's, it's not good. I actually loved this dog. Uh, it was our first dog. Uh, but uh, this moment was also not a good one. So you guys are going to think I'm dog haters. I'm not. I'm a dog lover. We walk into our house and we find our dog on all fours on the kitchen table, head buried into a freshly baked chocolate cake that was resting on the kitchen table. The fury that came up <laughs> in my mind. Oh, man. I mean, just, to, just inhaling it. So, of course, we get the dog down. But then what? Well, you realize that the dog has already begun the destruction of the cake. I mean, it's demolished. But even worse than that, think about this, no aspect, no part of that cake that was left could be enjoyed anymore by us. This is what's happening with the world when God sent the flood. Humans had begun the destruction of the world, and not just a little bit, but to the extent that nothing in the world would ever be enjoyed again the way God designed it to be. And it had to be cleaned out. The cake had to be scraped off into the trash. The dish had to be scrubbed out until it was totally clean again. And then and only then could we start with a new cake. This is the flood story. That human sinfulness had destroyed and was destroying the earth, making it unenjoyable for anybody, totally anti, anti the way God designed it. And so God wipes it clean. And starts over again. Now, the application for us here is we're talking about all the bad stuff first. The application for us is that God has warned us. If God speaks and then sends his judgment, God has already spoken about the final judgment that is to come when all sin will be accounted for and paid for. He's warned us that we can be sure that judgment's coming where he will again wipe the earth clean in order to make all things new again. This is going to happen, not by flood, because God will see in a few verses promises never to flood the earth again, but Peter will tell us in 2 Peter chapter 3 that instead of a flood, it will come again, but this time by fire. And only things that are eternal will survive this fire of judgment. All sin will be paid for, and everything that is created by sin, everything that sin has sin related to it in any way will be consumed by this fire. Even Jesus reminds his disciples, Luke chapter 17, if you just want to jot that in your note and go back to it here in a little bit, of Noah's story. Jesus brings up Noah, and he says how people pursued their own happiness in the time of Noah. Uh, they were eating, and they were drinking, and they were being given in marriage. Remember the Nephilim. They came from the sons of God and the daughters of men. This, this is what was happening. And then the flood came. And as they pursued their own happiness, they had no idea that judgment was coming. And Jesus was giving a warning that the same is going to happen again in the future. But this time it will be final. God's judgment will come to remedy sin and to remake creation. And we must be ready. We must be on the lookout. 
the lookout. It will happen again. And this is reality. They were pursuing their own happiness. We see that in the sons of God and daughters of men. We see that in Jesus' day. We see it in our day, people pursuing our own happiness without God. Guess what? Sin never leads to a happy fairy tale ending. Sin always leads to death. There is no happily ever after in sin. It will only end in judgment. And this is what makes the, the story of the flood really difficult. Because it does display God's judgment in an extremely vivid way. Now, what are we supposed to do with that? I mean, most people think, how could a loving God destroy his creation? Well, when you see that creation was destroying itself, God's love for creation is what shines through in the flood story, that he must rescue it from creation. The better question, though, is why would God allow anyone to survive the flood? Why a Noah? I mean, if things were as bad as chapter 6, verse 5 say they were, why would God's creative experiment not just end? I mean, in some ways, wouldn't that be such a cleaner story if the Bible began in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and ended in Genesis chapter 6, verse 7, when it says, he regretted that he made them? Story over? But chapter 6, verse 8 reveals something about God that becomes equally important to the story. And so while we see vividly God's judgment, we've also got to see hand in hand, one not lessening the other, God's grace. So God sees sin, and then God speaks about his judgment. Then he sends his judgment, but he also shows his grace. I want to show you five ways in this story that God shows his grace, starting with verse 8 and then reading into verse 9. Chapter 6 says this in chapter 6, Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. These are the family records of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries. Noah walked with God. Verse 9 tells us that Noah was the only man And if you remember from last week, chapter 5, he was the only man like his great-grandfather Enoch who walked with God as a close friend. The only one who had a blameless reputation. The only one who was righteous, which simply means to be right with God, in right relationship to God. This is where we get to this idea that Noah is a hero. That Noah is this great biblical figure that just had it all figured out. And and that's why God put him in this position to, to be a remnant of his goodness to the world. Because Noah was such a good guy. But lest you think that the ark is God's response to a righteous Noah, you got to take verse 8 into account first. God showed Noah favor. God showed Noah favor. Undeserved kindness is what that word means. It's the same word that would be translated in the Greek version of the Old Testament as grace. Our word grace in the New Testament is the same word used here. Unmerited favor, undeserved kindness. So Noah's righteousness, which Hebrews 11 in our New Testament, our big hall of fame of faith, Hebrews 11 tells us his righteousness was through faith. It wasn't a righteousness of works. 
It was a righteousness of trust, meaning that everything Noah was was a response to God's grace, his unmerited favor and kindness in his life. That's what made Noah the hero because God acted first out of grace. In the midst of knowing Noah was a sinful human wrapped up in the chapter 6, verse 5, inclination of the human mind bent towards evil all the time, Noah is there just like everybody else, but God showed Noah favor because he was doing something bigger. God showed Noah grace, meaning that Noah walked with God. Noah was blameless. Noah was righteous from God's grace, not for God's grace. His continual obedience, which if you read chapter 6 and 7 on your own time, what you'll see repeated four times is that Noah did just as the Lord commanded. His repeated obedience was from God's grace, not for it. So God's grace leads us, leads to our rescue. It's the first reality of grace we see, that it's God's grace that leads to rescue. The only reason Noah is given the instruction for the ark and the ability to be on the ark is because of God's grace. Where are you today with God's grace? Are you still working to earn God's favor? Are you still struggling to get it all right? Or can you, like Noah, receive the gift of grace? We talked about Romans 6.23. It says the wages of sin is death. But did you know in the New Testament, the next phrase in that passage is, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You can receive grace freely before you ever do anything from God so that the rest of your life can be lived from God's grace, not for it. Second thing we see is grace here in the Noah's Ark story is that God's grace provides a refuge. The Ark itself This is a great example of how God's commands and his instructions are an act of grace in and of themselves. Sometimes we think of God's instructions as a a burden that we have to bear, like the Ten Commandments. Well, if we don't follow all those, then we're going to be in real trouble right here, right? But even just giving the Ten Commandments was an act of grace. If you compare the Israelite culture with the one true God compared to the pagan cultures in their region that they all knew and maybe even had been uh, under the rule of in Egypt as slaves, you know, the, the Pharaoh God and all of the pagan deities, the pagan deities would give rules, but their rules were burdens to bear that could never be achieved. Sometimes, if they were given, sometimes there were no rules at all. People just had to guess Am I doing enough to appease the gods? But God in his kindness lays out exactly what he expects from his people and then gives us grace to accomplish those things. So God's grace in and of itself in his commands and instructions. They're in his commands and instructions. So the specific instructions that God gives is to build the first ever boat and to build it in a way that floats. I mean, this is a miracle in and of itself. There are other stories of floods in other pagan cultures of worldwide floods. But you know what? If you go read those stories, you'll never find instructions on a boat that floats. It's just an interesting little factoid. There are instructions about boats to survive the flood, but none of the instructions given would ever yield a boat that floats. God's instructions, however, because of his grace, yield a boat that floats. 
So you guys who want boats, by the way, uh, or the ones who have boats, you can thank God and his grace to Noah for the development of boats. But because, if you think of it this way, because God extended his grace to Noah in this way, to the extent that Noah would listen and obey God, he was safe from the storm. So God's already extended us the kindness and grace of his expectations, his best way to live, the the commands for us to follow. So to the extent that we listen and obey obey God, we will be safe from the storms of life. Is life hitting you hard? Is life tough? Have things surprised you and come out of left field and, and, and hit you below the belt? Have you lost everything? Have you lost relationships? Have you struggled through difficulties? All of these are times that lead us generally in our own natural desire to go away from God. But what the story of Noah is telling us is that when life hits us hard, if we run to God, to his commands and to his instructions, what we will find is that his grace is there all along and that is where we will find the way to survive any storm of life. So run to God. The most common descriptions of God in all of the Psalms, 150 Psalms, is the word refuge. God is our refuge in times of trouble. He's a refuge for the weak. He's a refuge for the weary, a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the hurting, for the anxious, a refuge for the scared. All of these show up over and over again in the Psalms. But most importantly, God is a refuge in the final judgment that is to come for those who respond to his grace through faith. So God's grace provides a refuge. He did it for Noah in the form of a boat. He does it for you in the form of a savior, Jesus Christ. Third, God's grace commits to remember. I wanna show you this slide uh, that kind of puts, and if you wanna grab your phone and take a picture of this, this is called a chiasm, a chiastic structure. Uh, Chi is the Greek letter X. And so you can actually see how it forms the shape of an X with half of it here from chapter six to chapter eight. Uh, And actually you could expand this a little bit, but I just wanted to show you this. So if you wanna go back to this later and look at it, you can see how everything is a mirror image of itself from top to bottom, all leading to the very center verse of chapter six through nine, which is chapter eight, verse one. God remembers Noah. So in some ways, the author of Genesis is saying There's all these details, and you can focus on all these details, and it's all good stuff, but the main thing I want you to see, the main lesson I want you to learn about God is that he remembers Noah. God remembers Noah. When you respond to God, to his grace through faith, you entrust yourself to God's ability to keep you and remember you, not your own. This is a way that a lot of people don't live even the Christian life like this. We come into a relationship with Jesus and then we wonder because things happen to us. We go through seasons of suffering. We wonder, has God forgotten me? We wonder, did I do something to deserve this suffering? Those are not true thoughts of God. Because when you entrust yourself to his grace through faith, 
What you're saying is I entrust my life into God's ability to keep me and remember me, not my own. Meaning there's nothing I can do to earn God's favor or lose God's favor. He just has shown me unmerited kindness and grace through Jesus Christ. And my response to that grace is faith and faith alone. And that is what leads us to wholeness with God forever. So we ask ourselves, has God forgotten me? Did I do something to deserve this suffering? These aren't true thoughts of God, but God's unmerited favor, his grace is his promise to remember us and to come through even to the very end. What's amazing to me is the length of time Noah was on the ark with his family. Maybe up to a year on the ark. That's a crazy amount of time. And you got to wonder day in and day out, what's going through his mind as everything around him dies? <laughs> Will I be next? Will it hold? Did I follow God's instructions closely enough? Did I do something wrong? Yet, chapter 8, verse 1, God remembered Noah. And then we see Remember the uncreation? We see God's grace results in recreation. Recreation. God didn't just wipe the cake pan clean, He baked a new cake. If you're looking in chapter 8, verse 1 through 19, you can actually follow some of the themes from Genesis chapter 1 in the original creation. You'll see uh, that it is intentionally reminiscent of that chapter. It's, it's a recreation. It's a beginning again, starting with God's spirit right there. He says he caused a wind, a, a, a pneuma, a, a, a ruah. To, this is the Hebrew word of spirit, God's spirit, the same one that shows up in chapter 1, verse 2. God caused it to pass over the land to begin the process of the waters receding. So again, recreation starts with God's spirit, just like it did in chapter 1. And then we see these themes repeated that it was followed then by sky, followed by water, followed by land coming back up through the water as the waters recede. Then we got the sunshine, which continues to dry out the water, evaporating the water. And then we've got birds that are flying. And then we've got humans and animals who are repopulating the earth, ready to repopulate the earth, uh, and being then ultimately blessed by God. This is the story of chapter 8. And then we get to chapter 8, verse 20, and something unique happens. Because we've seen the first six days of creation repeated again in Genesis chapter 8. What about day 7? Look with me in chapter 8, verse 20 and 21. It says, Noah then built an altar to the Lord. His first act after coming out of the ark is to build an altar. He took some of every kind of clean animal and every kind of clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, he said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of human beings. Even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward, I will never again strike down every living thing as I have done. God responds to Noah's sacrifice with a commitment to himself, a change of heart maybe you could say, but I would just say it's a commitment to the recreation a commitment to see it through. And he responds 
with rest. It's the only day of creation left. Look at it again. I want you to see the word pleasing. The pleasing aroma in verse 20, 21, excuse me. This word pleasing is the Hebrew word for rest. It's also akin to Noah's name. If you remember when Noah was named by his father, there was hope that he would bring relief or rest from the curse. Here it is. God, again, rests. He's pleased. He's soothed. His anger is lessened because he has dealt with sin and recreated something new and good again, and now he is ready to enjoy life with mankind once more. And he commits to himself never again to destroy. So it's a recreation, a new start, a chance for Noah to do what Adam could not do. But this fifth and lastly, I just want to show you how God's grace promises to keep relationship. Chapter 9. We've made it through a lot. Thank you. This is where it gets really good. Chapter 9, verse 1. God blessed Noah. All of Genesis is about the idea that God seeks to bless humanity. And we see it explicit here. God blessed Noah. So here we are, a chance for Noah to do what Adam could not. In fact, if you're following in chapter 9, you see three times the phrase repeated, the blessing that came from Genesis chapter 1, that Noah and his sons ought to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So it's saying, here's the recreation, Noah. Here's your chance to get it right. Here's your chance for us to live in harmony forever, to enjoy and delight in creation made new. He even goes as far as to establish a covenant, a union, a partnership with Noah. Look with me at what verse 8 and 9 of chapter 9 say. Uh, He says, God said to Noah and his sons with him, Understand, I'm establishing my covenant with you, my union, my partnership with you, and your descendants after you, and with every living creature that's with you, birds, livestock, all the wildlife of the earth that are with you, the animals of the earth that came out of the ark. I established my covenant with you that you'll never again, never again will every creature be wiped out. What God is saying is, is, is Noah, I'm even giving you Adam's job to watch over, have dominion over all the animals, to look after them. Adam was cursed to work the ground. Noah, I'm giving you the chance to get back to the original intent to work with the animals. Can Noah accomplish the task? Well, God says, regardless of what Noah does, he is going to keep his promise. In fact, he's going to give Noah a sign of his promise. So verse 12, God says, this is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all future generations. I've placed my bow in the clouds, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I form clouds over the earth and the bow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all the living creatures. Water will never again become a flood to destroy every creature. The bow will be in the clouds and I will look at it and remember the permanent covenant between God and all the living creatures on earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and every creature on earth. So God gives a sign of the covenant. Now here's what's interesting about this particular sign of the covenant. We know it as a rainbow. But the Hebrew word bow 
is used here is translated straight to bow because the word is not a big, pretty, colorful rainbow as much as we love rainbows. It is definitely the image of a rainbow. But the word means war bow. War bow. Like bow and arrow. And God says, Noah, because you responded to my grace with your obedience and your righteousness, and we are right together, and then you came off the ark, your sacrifice was pleasing to me, I can rest in this relationship, I'm going to commit for now on a permanent covenant union partnership with you, that this new creation uh, will be something I never again destroy by flood. And here's my sign to you, is I'm taking my war bow, my judgment bow, and I'm hanging it up. I'm done with it. I'm setting it down. But did you notice the shape? You think about the shape of a rainbow? Where is it aiming? It's aiming toward God. Several people have pointed out that this is, you know, not necessarily, it's not given to us in Genesis that this is what God is doing. But it makes sense to us in the whole story of Scripture that God, like he says, after he receives the pleasing aroma of Noah's sacrifice, that he knows and understands that the, the, the heart of man is still inclined towards sin from youth onward. He knows that Noah is not perfect. He knows Noah cannot fulfill what Adam was supposed to fill. So it's like a family lineage, right? It's a heritage of sin. Noah's not gonna be able to do it either. But instead of saying, I'm gonna reserve my judgment bow toward humanity and wipe you out all again, he says, I'm gonna hang it up. And instead, judgment is still gonna happen but it's not gonna be aimed at humans. I'm gonna aim it at myself because I am the only one that can withstand the judgment and wrath for sin. And then the story goes that God provided a new and better Adam, a new and better Noah, one who was not unfaithful to the covenant, one who perfectly fulfilled all of God's righteous decrees and commands, uh, one who would not just pass through the waters of judgment, but would actually submit to death willingly, being buried, and then three days later proving his power over death by being raised from the dead. Who are we talking about? We're talking about Noah's son Shem, 65 generations later, according to Luke chapter 3, a man named Jesus Christ, who the Bible says is the son of God. God himself come to earth to take on the judgment for sin himself, something we could never do on our own. So Jesus is the better Noah. Jesus is the better Adam. And Jesus is the only one who can take the flood of God's judgment on himself. And he did it at the cross. So instead of the one being saved, while the many faced judgment, now we have the one facing judgment for all so the many might be saved. This is the story of Noah's ark. The ark, which only had room for some, replaced by Jesus Christ himself, who has room for all. Whoever would respond to this grace of God through faith, Jesus has room for you. 
and would gladly welcome you in to be your refuge from God's judgment, to protect you forever, to give you eternal life with God through the forgiveness of your sin. This is good news. You respond by faith. We've talked about this all along. Do you know faith is more than just mental agreement? Faith, just like Noah entering the ark, faith is a union, entering a union with Christ. It's choosing to be in Christ, which is not just mental. It's joining a covenant partnership with Jesus Christ, God of the universe, by which we ourselves, just like the world had to endure, we ourselves go through an uncreation and a recreation, which is a gospel pattern. Shows up all through the Bible in this way that we can experience new life and resurrection only in Jesus Christ when we die to ourselves. So, to be made new, just like the earth was at the time of the flood, we have to be unmade first. We can't carry our sinful selves into the ark, we must receive God's grace first and live from that lives of obedience lives of kinship with Jesus adopted as sons and daughters with him under God this is what the flood narrative calls us to we can't do this on our own we entrust ourselves to the savior who himself passed through death and came out on the other side resurrected so that all things could be made new again. Even you. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes, and I'll just use this to close. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, by faith you have entered the ark of Jesus Christ to be a, your refuge from the judgment of sin, to find forgiveness and eternal life. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. And see, the new has come. You can be made new again through faith in Jesus Christ. I want to lead us in a prayer before we dismiss. Let's just let this truth settle in for a minute. And as I pray over you, and then we'll leave together. Let's pray. God, thank you for your goodness to us in Jesus Christ. Thank you that you have given us a covenant of grace that we did not deserve, that we could not earn, but you showed your kindness to us by giving us Jesus Christ. And if we come to him by faith, we find rescue and refuge. We find a relationship with you for eternity. And that we, God, can trust that you will remember us my prayer today is for those who might not be in that kind of union or covenant relationship with Jesus yet, that they would have the courage to take that step. God, I pray for our church that we would be people who increase in faith to trust in Jesus and his work for us on our behalf, and that we would be people of grace because of the work of Jesus. Your judgment's real, but your grace is so real. Help us be people that move into your grace and trust you with our lives.
Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.